This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, law professors Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick discuss the post-Civil War change to the Constitution in their book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. What modern constitutional law is based on is Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Um, And misreadings of Section 1 on the 14th Amendment has led to misreadings of Section 5, which empowers Congress to enforce Section 1. So I guess... um, The real reason, uh, the main reason uh, I would say that is that um, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment uh, is the most important constitutional amendment that the American people have never heard of. They are interviewed by Yale Law Professor John Witt. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, Randy Barnett, Evan Burnick. Uh, It's wonderful to be here with you. I'm really glad to be having a conversation about your amazing, amazing new book, which I've got. I've got right here. Um, hope, hope we can just jump right right into it. Well, it's great great for of you to do this. Uh, we really appreciate you doing this, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the conversation we're about to have. I as well. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure that we're going to have a lot of fun. But, but my, really, really, my the pleasure is going to be mine. Uh, it's um, uh, this, this is a book. Uh, I, I really encourage people to go out and get it and take a look. I can't think of a a, a better a cutting edge introduction to this fascinating and controversial thing called original plain original public meaning constitutionalism. Uh, we've got things like a blow by blow of the drafting of the 14th amendment. Uh, we have an amazing and wonderful introduction to the growing historical literature on anti-slavery constitutionalism, which is so decisive from the, you know, we're, we're still today shaped by the 1840s and fifties, and this is a book that helps readers uh, see see that. And it's a book, and this is really what I, I hope we, we talk about a, a lot here, is it's a book that says that nearly everything we know about some of the key sections of Section 1 and Section 5 of the 14th Amendment is all wrong. Uh, so I'd love to, to, um, uh, to get into uh, uh, some of that with, with you. Here's, here's a place I thought we might start, and I hope I'll be interested to see what, whether you think this is a, um, the premise of this question is right. You know, when I think about originalism, and of course there are now many originalisms in this flourishing and controversial space, when I think of, of, of originalisms, I think of Philadelphia. I think of 1787. You know, maybe it's that I'm a Philadelphian. Your cheesesteaks and tasty cakes are principal parts of my diet. And so I think about uh, 1787, James Madison, James Wilson, uh, the founders in that 18th century sense. Tell me what it meant for you guys to write a book that was about originalism, but took Reconstruction as its central, as its central topic. I, well, what did that mean? What's its significance? Uh, I'd love to know more about that. Well, I first became uh, a, a, a familiar with uh, anti-slavery constitutionalism some 15 or 20 years ago. I had a Guggenheim Fellowship, and I decided to devote myself to familiarizing myself with this. I originally knew about one guy in particular, Lysander Spooner, but then I discovered that he had a whole cohort of people he was interacting with, including Frederick Douglass, um, um, and how complicated and how sophisticated their arguments, their constitutional arguments were. Um, and, but I did it on a lark. I did it just because I was independently interested in it. I didn't actually think it was going to connect up with anything that I was doing as a constitutional law professor. Um, uh, but then when uh, Evan and I started collaborating on the work on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, it was quite obvious. And in fact, I even had an article published in the Journal of Legal Analysis, uh, which was about... Uh, each and every word and uh, each and every clause in the 14th Amendment and how the antecedents of those clauses lie in anti-slavery constitutionalism. But when Evan and I started working on it, what we needed to take account of uh, was the degree to which the Republican Party, uh, which was the successor party from the Liberty Party, then the Free Soil Party, and eventually the Republican Party as an anti-slavery party, had taken on board um, many of these arguments, not all of them, but many of these arguments, and and then eventually enshrine them into the text of the Constitution itself in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And I think getting back to 
your original point about when you think of originalism, you think of the founding. I think that has been unfortunately all too true uh, of originalists generally. Uh, and that is that we all talk about the founding and Wilson and, and Madison um, and Morris and all the rest of them uh, as though our constitutional texts stopped there. But in fact, it didn't. Um, and we all are familiar with some of the moral defects of the founding, uh, which were quite serious. Um, but our constitutional history proceeded apace um, and gave rise to the story that we tell in our book that ultimately culminates in an amendment to the Constitution. So let me just define for the listeners what I think originalism is. It is the proposition that the meaning of the Constitution should remain the same until it's properly changed by amendment. The meaning of the Constitution should remain the same until it's properly changed by amendment. And our book is about a 14th Amendment, which does properly change the original meaning of the Constitution. So for me, the question of why we should pay attention to the antebellum uh, contestation over slavery and the history of Reconstruction is a twofold um, reason. First, just for the sake of integrity as an originalist, if you want to understand the meaning of the text that was ratified into the Constitution in 1868, it would behoove you to pay attention to the first few decades of the 19th century rather than taking a razor-sharp focus just on the period from 1788 to 1791. The second reason is because it is in my view, a moral obligation on the parts of constitutional scholars, judges, members of the bar to recognize the degree to which uh, focusing exclusively on that 1788 to 1791 period effectively erases the greatest mass movement in the history of our country and arguably, with the possible exception of the Haitian Revolution, the greatest liberatory movement in the entire world. A slaveholding republic's power, its grasp over all three branches of government, was smashed at the very peak of that power. Uh, for the first several presidencies of our country, we had a Congress and we had a presidency in significant part because of structural features that bolstered the representation of slaveholders. Overtly, deliberately furthering slaveholding projects both at home and increasingly abroad with an eye to making the United States a slaveholding power on par with the supposedly great slaveholding republics like Brazil, uh, like Brazil and other countries. This was not just a fever dream. This was an active program that was designed to spread slavery as the preferred form of organized labor over the entire world. And that whole movement and its grip on the political structure of our country was dismantled. It didn't mean the end of racial subjugation as the experience of Reconstruction and the ultimate defeat of Reconstruction, thanks in significant part to the Supreme Court, demonstrated. But it meant for a few glorious years we had what W.E.B. Du Bois referred to as abolition democracy, two branches of the federal government deliberately turning institutions that had been used to dominate and subjugate to liberation, to protecting black people against physical violence, increasing economic opportunity, protecting civil rights, and gradually including an excluded people into our social order. This is a remarkable achievement in world history. And the way that our current constitutional law approaches the 14th Amendment, it is history that is considered for practical purposes almost entirely irrelevant. So both methodologically and morally, we can do better. And this book is dedicated to that proposition. Well, I'm emphatically not an originalist, but all the things you guys say really resonate with me. And uh, You know, the movement from slavery to something like freedom, and maybe we should get into that at some point uh, during this conversation, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, is one of the most important social, moral transformations in um, uh, in, 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 in world history, uh, certainly in the history of, of the United States. And so for sure, your core principles of, um, of, of, of these Reconstruction Amendments and the 14th maybe in particular uh, are, should be at the heart of our, of our Constitution. So lots of agreement. Maybe my non, not being an originalism will make some, for some interesting pieces as we move through. But here, here's a question that arises out of your effort, really serious and deep effort, 
to figure out what that social and moral transformation means for our Constitution today. You guys leave some things out of the 14th Amendment in your account of it. And self-consciously, you, you, you tell the reader right up front. So you leave out, for the most part, the citizenship clause that leads off the first section of the 14th Amendment. And then you're not interested in this book in section two of the 14th Amendment, which was designed to produce an electorate that would be something like the electorate of, of the, the, the full male population of the South, right? It controversially adds the, the, a gender-specific pronoun, and it's designed to prevent uh, white Southern states from excluding uh, black men from, from voting rights. You leave out section three and section four as well, maybe less important now, but still about the structure of the electorate and governance, the internal governance of the, um, of the United States. Why did you leave those things out? And I guess the reason I asked to put my cards on the table mm-hmm. is I'm wondering whether leaving those things out changes the nature of the 14th Amendment and the lessons of Reconstruction that we might think we see uh, in, in the amendment. Well, um, as you know from having looked at the book, it's pretty long as it is. And, uh, the, the, and so that by itself is a justification to not do any more work, particularly on provisions of the text that are not currently uh, a subject of constitutional adjudication um, or litigation. So um, uh, the sections two, three, and four are just not litigated. I mean, there, are, there actually are some appeals to it occasionally, but they're really idiosyncratic. Um, what we really, uh, what, what, what modern constitutional law is based on is Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Um, and misreadings of Section 1 on the 14th Amendment has led to misreadings of Section 5, which empowers Congress to enforce Section 1. So I guess um, the real reason, uh, the main reason uh, I would say that is that um, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment or, uh, is the most important constitutional amendment that the American people have never heard of. And I've discovered this since having written the book, and I tell friends and acquaintances or, or people uh, in offices that I'm visiting that I wrote a book on the 14th Amendment, and they, and they say, uh, I'm sorry, I, I just don't know what amendment that is. Mm-hmm. And yet, every challenge uh, to a state law based on the First Amendment freedom of speech, the First Amendment free exercise of religion, the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, all of the so-called Bill of Rights challenges, almost all of the Bill of Rights challenges that we argue about are actually 14th Amendment cases. And I think that fully justifies focusing only on Section 1 and then also on Section 5. Um, uh, I do think we, we do con- talk considerably uh, uh, about citizenship, however. In fact, I think focusing on the citizenship clause, and I'm going to ask, and I'll have Evan say a little more about this, uh, focusing on the citizenship clause really helps inform what the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States are. Because essentially what the 14th Amendment enshrined was what we call a concept of Republican citizenship. And if you understand what Republican citizenship was, that will go a long ways to figuring out what the 14th Amendment was supposed to protect. And I think, if it's okay, I think maybe Evan can talk a little bit more about that. Sure, but before I do, just to address the question of why we didn't focus our energies on the, the middle provisions, the middle sections of the 14th Amendments, my short answer would be that if the Supreme Court had systematically undermined those provisions with the same <laughs> dedication that it had done Section 1 and Section 5, we might have to write another book. And also, Professor Mark Graber has anticipated any such effort by dedicating an entire book to the proposition, this is going to be coming out relatively soon, that Professors Burnick and Barnett have entirely focused too much energy on Sections 1 and 5 and neglected uh, the, the intervening sections. So we look forward to that debate. Sections 2 through 4 really are important to understanding that the 14th Amendment was a political amendment. It was designed to entrench and place beyond any doubt in the Constitution a, a broad, inclusive conception, although not maximally inclusive conception, of citizenship and to protect the individual rights of all people from depredation. But it was also designed to ensure that institutional structures were in place to ensure that a party that was committed to that vision of citizenship and was committed to that kind of baseline protection for all people would remain in power. We don't deny that, but we recognize that this is an act of high political morality that genuinely does affect a transformation in the what had been initially a 1788 constitution that did not define citizenship and left to antebellum forces contesting over slavery to disagree about just what 
came with being included as a member of the polity? Did it simply mean that one had the right to to travel to other states and take one's chances with respect to what states, um, what liberties the citizens of those states enjoyed um, with respect to what you could expect to be protected? Or did you, were you entitled to have confidence, whoever you were, if you were born and naturalized or naturalized in the United States and you traveled throughout the country, you could ensure that certain fundamental rights that were necessary to the protection of your liberty and your and civic equality vis-a-vis other citizens were consistently respected. That was the contest that was ultimately resolved in favor of what Randy has referred to as Republican citizenship. Uh, a concept that began its germination within abolitionist circles, but then was then taken up, modified somewhat by Republicans, and embedded in the Constitution as a commitment beyond any doubt to this inclusive conception of citizenship grounded in fundamental rights and civic equality, together with a commitment to empowering an institution, specifically Congress, um, to legislate on behalf of those civil rights and to protect that civic equality in ways that the original Constitution, or the 1788 Constitution, uh, had fallen short of doing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, one of, the, um, one of the things about Republican citizenship, and this is maybe why I asked my question about things that were left out, um, and of course, you know, books can't get too long, so I'm hugely sympathetic as, as, a, as a would-be book writer myself. Uh, um, I, I get that. But the Republican citizenship has at least two components. And one component, which you guys bring out really powerfully and creatively and controversially at times, which I hope we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into, um, you really bring out effectively the individual right side of Republican citizenship. The, the parts about being a citizen that are about holding off the overweening power of the state and making sure there's a space for individual liberty. Uh, that you bring out really well. I wonder, though, if leaving out other parts, including you know, a, 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 um, the Citizenship Clause and then Section 2 in particular, as I say, leaves out the other side of Republican citizenship, which is really about the citizen participating in self-governance and democratic, democratic self-governance. And so part of what the Civil War and Reconstruction are to me, which means part of what anti-slavery constitutionalism is for me, is the p- empowerment of the state and of democratic self-governance to change the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that would be empowering state governments, empowering the federal government, delivering new authority. Uh, and I, I worry a little bit, to be honest, that leaving out those sections mm, redirects the book, makes it a book about individual liberty, when actually the 14th Amendment mm-hmm. is a whole new constitution on both sides of the ledger. So my response to that is that Republican citizenship is not a term that is designed to refer to like the best understanding of republicanism as understood as a commitment to self-governance, the protection of individual rights, democratic representation, as it has developed in the literature and political science and with respect to also um, the development of the abolitionist, uh, development of abolitionist thoughts. It is a claim that there was, at a particular point in time, a Republican Party that ascended to power and had a specific understanding of citizenship. And we'd uh, endeavor to unpack exactly what that was. We are very clear that, contrary to, speaking for myself, my own Republican, small r, commitments, Republican citizenship did not recognize the fundamental nature of voting rights at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified into law. quite This was not because it just never occurred to anybody that in order to build a citizenship worthy of the name, you needed political rights. But it does recognize that the voices that called for that kind of Republican citizenship 
were at that point in time in history, regretfully marginalized. And people like Thaddeus Stevens and Jacob Howard and the countless uh, freed people who participated in what are now anachronistically referred to as the Colored People's Conventions and called specifically for voting rights, voting rights, voting rights, give us suffrage or give us nothing, did not get everything that they wanted and did not give us everything that's speaking from my own normative perspective, I would have wanted to see. One of the things that Randy and I try to do throughout this book is to separate what we think are considered reflection on what the evidence we've uncovered shows from what we would do, all things considered. We're not committed to telling people that because the historical record has fallen short of our normative aspirations, we should neglect to acknowledge the underside, even of the basic concept of citizenship. The basic concept of citizenship draws a distinction between members of the polity and the other in ways that, as a matter of political theory, I think are profoundly problematic. But did what the 14th Amendment represent and accomplish mark a change, a dramatic change that reduced a hell of a lot of harm and would have been able to do a lot more in that regard had it uh, abolition democracy not been... Uh, you know, basically shipwrecked by the Supreme Courts, not, not to mention uh, revenge and forces that went out of their way to target uh, supporters of rights for black people and other marginalized populations? Well, yes, absolutely. We acknowledge that, but we make our effort to do what we can to find where the evidence leads and also recognize that the evidence does not lead to a happy ending for everybody, not even for us. The 14th, if the 14th Amendment did more than it did, than we say it did, then the 15th and the 19th Amendments protecting the right to vote from racial discrimination or sex-based discrimination would not need to have been adopted. So the existence of the 15th and the 19th Amendments is evidence. It's not actually 100% proof, but it's, evi- it's substantial evidence that the scope of the 14th Amendment was limited in the ways that we describe. But mm-hmm. it has a far greater reach than it's been given uh, it was certainly has a far greater reach than it was given by the Supreme Court immediately after it was adopted. And mm-hmm. even to this day, it has a greater reach than the Supreme Court is willing to give it. Yeah. The only one more point that I would add to this is that Frederick Douglass actually campaigned against the 14th Amendment because he, thinks, he thought that it didn't secure suffrage rights. On the one hand, it was committed to citizenship, which he thought entailed voting rights, as most black people who, um, whose, uh, the, whose access to whose records we have now They consistently asked for voting rights. They consistently demanded voting rights. And Frederick Douglass said, look, if you continue to look on in this amendment, you'll find in Section 2 that uh, apparently southern states can continue to disenfranchise people on the basis of race so long as they're prepared to pay representation in the form of representation to Congress. He considered that a limitation. And he and other abolitionists like um, uh, Wendell Phillips and William Lloyd Garrison dedicated themselves to saying we need to do better than the 14th Amendment. We need to do better. If I could just say one more thing about Section 2 and the addition of the word male in the Constitution, uh, this, th- that addition is what led many uh, feminists at the time um, to oppose the 14th Amendment. And the reason they did is instructive. They did so because under the previous approach of anti-slavery constitutionalism, the Constitution was gender neutral, that where it says refers to uh, the masculine, he... That actually meant, under conventional usage, human beings in that context. It could mean gender, but it didn't mean gender in the context uh, or sex in the context of the Constitution. What, object, what, what feminists objected to so much is that this was going to be the first time that sex was introduced into the Constitution by using the word male in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. So that, to me, is the most signif- one of the most significant implications of Section 2 um, is what it tells us about how the Constitution was previously interpreted to be gender neutral or sex neutral before Section 2 was adopted. One of my favorite parts of the book is your long section on Victoria Woodhull. And I think, you know, if you guys manage nothing, I'm sure you'll do more than this, but if you manage nothing except to bring Victoria Woodhull into originalist conversations, it'll be a great victory uh, for all of us. So, so, uh, so thanks for, for that. Enough about the... I thank you for entertaining me with the things that aren't in your book. Um, uh, so much in the book, uh, um, and and you know a clause by clause rehearsal of the origins, 
uh, meaning at the time and how we should understand some of the most, you know, principal parts of, of Section 1. I wanted to ask you in particular about the Equal Protection Clause. And I found really striking and especially innovative the pieces of your book that were about the Equal Protection Clause and the distinctive reading that you offer for it. You've also got really interesting and important stuff on privileges and immunities. Maybe the privileges and immunities is the heart of the book in some ways. So, Because um, it's the heart of the 14th Amendment. Too. Yeah. Well, on your account for sure, uh, and on lots of other accounts, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Um, but the equal protection piece, to me, maybe because I've read too much in the privileges and immunities literature over the years, I hung out with Akhil Amar too often. Um, so, so to me, your equal protection claim was especially distinctive and interesting. Uh, wonder if you think that's right, and um, uh, if you if you'd care to elaborate. It is distinctive. We are not the first uh, scholars to argue that what is often referred to as the state action doctrine, which holds that the 14th Amendment applies only to state action. It doesn't doesn't apply to private parties. A state's failure to act to uh, provide protection for civil rights against private actors uh, doesn't trigger the 14th Amendment. That's what current law says. So we're not the first to challenge that consensus. But what we do add, first of all, is recognition of the degree to which um, the the program of Reconstruction really did depend upon that understanding um, being widely held amongst Republicans who sought to remedy precisely um, the failure on the parts of Southern states to act in order to protect people against the Ku Klux Klan, both enslaved, uh, formerly enslaved people and their white allies, against uh, systematic violence and depredation. So uh, while the core claim isn't new, we do make an effort to reckon with that history and to uh, show just how centrally important it was to those who ratified the 14th Amendment into law and those who considered them their ideological successors to ensure that Congress could act if states failed to protect people in respect of their civil rights. Well, one of the great virtues of the book is the way you go into the post-enactment uh, statutory history mm-hmm. with the Klan Acts and the Enforcement Acts. And, uh, and these are all pieces of legislation by which Congress tried to take this new thing, yeah. the 14th Amendment, and then enact legislation, you know, create the Justice Department at just the same time mm-hmm. uh, with the project of being able to protect newly freed people against the Ku Klux Klan and other forms of of white racial and political violence against Republicans uh, and against um, against newly freed uh, black people. So, so I, th- that that's wonderful part of the book. I think the reason why it struck me is I I, I imagine that the equal protection, the extending the equal protection clause, um, uh, posed an interesting challenge for the effort to protect individual liberty. A challenge a little bit like, it runs along the following lines. You, you didn't want to say, as some people who've done this before say, that there's no difference between action and inaction. You didn't want to say that. You also didn't want to challenge the state action doctrine entirely and say that there is no, there's no, there's no distinction between the state on the one hand, the public, and instead the private. And instead you introduce you know, a, an interesting three-part set of categories in which we have um, uh, public and governmental, public and non-governmental, and private and non-governmental. These are these are categories that I hadn't encountered before in my reading in this in this space. And I imagine that what's going on there is that if you want to create a charter for individual liberty that restrains the state, um, uh, it's dangerous to start inviting the state to manage conduct between private parties. And so that's a, a complicated line for you guys as you, as you walk this 14th Amendment out in to the private sphere. Am I, am I right to sense some, some, some stage management on your parts? Well, I think you're absolutely right to call attention to the three categories. In fact, I'm about to give a talk to the National, uh, National Lawyers Convention of the Federalist Society to, uh, on Friday in which I emphasize the three categories because they're unfamiliar to to most constitutional lawyers and most members of the general public. We're accustomed to thinking of private non-governmental as a category and public governmental as a category. And then, as you know, in academia, there's a lot of effort to collapse these two or to contest the public, what's called the public-private distinction. But what we've attempted to, uh, what we found when we looked at the evidence is that the only way to explain 
the Republicans' conception of citizenship as well as the equal protection of the laws is to realize that they had a third category in mind. And as soon as you point that out, you have to, come, you have to immediately acknowledge things that, for example, uh, the first Justice John Marshall Harlan acknowledged in his dissent in the civil rights cases that invalidated the public accommodations law of 1875, that there really were three categories and they're to be found in the common law, the common law that governs the, the, uh, the, the relation of innkeepers to the general public, the common law that governs the relation of common carriers to the general public. The, 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 the category of businesses that came to be called businesses affected with a public interest after the 14th Amendment was adopted is a middle category in which instead of private non-governmental and public governmental in the middle, you have public non-governmental. Now, that does that is not to say, and it's important to insist, that that middle category is neither over here nor is it over here. Therefore, it's not necessarily governed by the same principles that would govern here or govern here. And the, the predominant principle that governs this middle category is the principle of non-discrimination, mm-hmm. non-arbitrary exclusion from this re- regime, this area of our public life that is what we have a right to participate in as citizens of a, of a republic. Um, and so a non-discrimination norm in the middle is not to be confused um, with the, the kind of discrimination norm that we really can do on the private non-governmental side, in the sense we decide who we want to marry and we decide uh, who we want to go to dinner with and who we want to go and watch the game with. These are all purely private decisions or on the governmental side where the government is not free to make any such distinctions among its citizens. In the middle, it's a middle terrain, but this is the, this is the area that the Republicans sought to reach with the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which barred discrimination in public accommodations. Um, and, uh, and once it was invalidated, it didn't get renewed. That, that commitment to non-discrimination didn't get renewed until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which because of the precedent established by the civil rights cases, was thought to be, it was thought necessary to do so under Congress's commerce power instead of its civil rights power, um, which has been used to justify an over-generous or an over-expansive reading of the commerce power, because unless you have this over-expansive reading of the commerce power, you can't protect civil rights. But in fact, there actually is a civil rights power in the Constitution in Section 2 of the 13th Amendment and Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. If I, if I can just make one other point, that's um, uh, somewhat related. I think the most imp- one of the most important distinctions for people to realize is that the 13th Amendment was designed to make unconstitutional and prohibit slavery, involuntary servitude. The 14th Amendment was designed to address legalized white supremacy that arose in this country in the aftermath of the abolition of slavery. But those who favored the abolition of slavery really believed and I could imagine why it seemed right to them to believe that if you just abolish slavery, everything would be okay. Even, and especially if it took a war to do it, once if slavery was abolished, we would go about our business, except that's not what happened. What happened is the, is the emergence of a terrorist movement on behalf of white supremacy in a large part of the country that had to be suppressed uh, both legally with federal troops but statutorily with civil rights laws, and then the authority for those civil rights laws had to be provided by a constitutional amendment, which would then enshrine those principles, um, even when eventually the Southern Democrats would come back into Congress and perhaps repeal some of these laws. So you have one amendment aimed at slavery, but you have another amendment aimed at white supremacy, and it was the failure of the Supreme Court and then the federal government after that to enforce that amendment that led us to 80 or 90 years of Jim Crow uh, subjugation in this country that we really didn't have to experience. At the, there's at, a lot. Oh, go ahead. There's, there's a, a lot. A lot here. I mean, one of the things I hope um, viewers are seeing is that the book connects readers up to the whole expanse of the constitutional project, the constitutional experience from you know, the 1860s to the 1960s and 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 beyond. I mean, um, you know, like reading this book. You're in uh, Morrison against the United States uh, and, and the Violence Against Women Act, uh, even as you're with Victoria Woodhull. I mean, it's really it, just as, as Randy suggests, it connects up all, all, all these all these things. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off, Evan. 
Oh, I was just going to express a mild disagreement with my co-author with respect to the 13th Amendment and precisely what it was able to do. Um, the 13th Amendment notoriously does not entirely ban slavery or involuntary servitude. It does so except in punishment for a crime. And southern states responded to that space by enacting laws that were designed to impose slavery by another name by means of texts that allowed them, arguably, to do precisely that. The 14th Amendment was... Uh, unquestionably a means of going beyond the abolition of slavery to abolish white supremacy, but it was also a makeup of sorts for the limitations of the 13th Amendment in achieving the kind of justice and creating the kind of citizenship uh, that Republicans desired. I mean, if you look at the leading Republicans who spoke in the 39th Congress about what they understood the uh, 13th Amendment to be able to do, um, with the exception of John Bingham and a couple of other, you know, hardline antebellum federalists who had a conception of congressional power that was more limited, um, the idea was that the 13th Amendment, simply by abolishing slavery, would enable the creation of Republican citizenship without any further constitutional amendments. The 14th Amendment was a recognition both of the limitations of the 13th Amendment as well as an effort to go above and beyond the 13th Amendment in actively creating citizenship. This, by the way, is, exemplifies why it has been so wonderful to collaborate with Evan on this book as a co-author, because this is the kind of interaction we have all the time in writing this book. I don't disagree with a word that Evan just said. I, di I didn't disagree with it. Uh, uh, he isn't that he's just persuaded me of it. I don't disagree with the word he said. But notice, I expressed myself in one way, and then he came back and did a bit of editing um, into how I expressed myself. And this is how we worked together for, I don't know, maybe th two or three years um, oh, in the course of writing our previous articles and then writing this book. So hopefully mm -hmm. the end result <laughs> is this mutual editing and this mutual adjustment so we finally hit upon something that is, it is far more sound than either one of us could have produced without the other. Randy and I don't agree on everything. We agree on everything that made it into print in that book. Well, it sounds like the best kind of uh, co-authorship, but mm -hmm. it, it comes out in, in, the, in the book. It's really a well, a well crafted, a well crafted piece piece of work. One of the things that the book does is uh, will do, I think, is introduce a new set of readers who are maybe interested in Reconstruction to uh, questions about original public meaning, originalism. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the theoretical interpretive moves that you start the book off with, but then run through your effort to make sense of what the history means for us in the present. Um, and I, as I found myself thinking about the significance of the, that interpretive move, uh, I, I, I was struck time and again by questions about whether or not original public meaning, uh, originalism, could do the work uh, that other forms of originalism had seemed to do o over time. And maybe a way to, to illustrate that would be, I take it from our discussion of the Equal Protection Clause and, um, uh, and, and the state action doctrine or the relations among private parties in this category of um, uh, public but non-governmental. You know, Randy said, I think just a moment ago, that that public but non-governmental category becomes the category of businesses affected with the public interest, uh, that's, you know, classically grain elevators and the like in the 1870s. But of course, that category, businesses affected with the public interest, is you know, hugely open-ended. Uh, eventually, in the 1930s, it will come to include milk production. It's not a containable category since the public interest reaches so many different places. And by distinguishing original public meaning originalism from original expected applications originalism, I, I found myself really wondering whether your really powerful creative interpretations of the 14th Amendment, Section 1, um, were capable of, of constraining and limiting, which is the work that originalism seemed to be able to do, at least by its proponent's account, for, for so long. Am I, am I wrong to sense, a, sense a, a, a difficulty down that path for you? I mean, if that's where the evidence leads, that's where the evidence leads. Um, as far as we're concerned, a project that is dedicated only to constraining the discretion of judges, uh, regardless of what the effects of that are in delivering on the full promise of the law that they promise 
that they take an oath to follow and dedicate themselves and at least uh, in uh, a number of important cases claim to be guided by, um, then that those are the breaks. Um, one of the points that we do try to stress is that simply because a concept is blurry at the edges, it's more of a family resemblance than a you know, uh, necessary and sufficient conditions concept, doesn't mean that there's no core to it. And we can find a core of settled meaning even in concepts that are contested at the boundaries and the edges. But you're right that we're not going to be able to deliver on, like, the promise of Raoul Berger's original expectations of originalism as articulated by early originalists who seemed at points to go out of their way to emphasize that the 14th Amendment really didn't do much at all. But, you know, so much for the worst of it. Readers can make their way through the historical evidence and judge who has the better of the arguments. And, and as you know, one of the things we do in the beginning of the book is explain the difference between the original public meaning of the letter of the Constitution, which is what originalists should be looking for, and uh, implementing that original public meaning in light of the spirit of the text, which we are, and that's the subtitle of the book, the, its letter and spirit. The spirit of the text is the original purpose, the original function, the original end, the original object, whichever word you choose. Um, of those provisions, what work were they were supposed to do? And in the book, and we believe this is a historical question as well. This isn't the purposes that we would like it to do. Um, uh, it is the purposes that existed at the time it was implemented, and what it means mm-hmm. to be faithful, to be genuinely faithful in applying the original public meaning into new circumstances. And that's why, in order to re-emphasize that methodological point, we separate. Uh, the consideration of the spirit into separate chapters. So it's clear that having laid out the original public meaning, we're now going to turn our attention to something that's different. It's related, it's historical, but it's different. And it's something that sort of resembles framers' intentions, but only at the level of publicly known or publicly available purposes, which is what even critics of originalism like Paul Brest thought was a perfectly sensible way uh, and a perfectly commonplace way of, of faithfully applying law or text to particular problems. Mm -hmm. And just another way to illustrate this might be to uh, go back to the question of state action and the public-private distinction. The public-private distinction has come under withering criticism from virtually every school of thought within uh, legal scholarship since at least the early 20th century. But we don't reject the public-private distinction or, or reject the state action doctrine because we think that they're ultimately muddled or incoherent or normatively indefensible. We embrace a a version of it because we are convinced on the basis of the evidence that we have discovered that Republicans believed in it enough to entrench in the Constitution a commitment to it in the form of privileges or immunities that uh, incorporated common law distinctions. And we go with that. By saying we're not adopting in full these critiques of the state action doctrine, it's not necessarily that, well, we we don't buy them and we're worried about overwhelming government, although we might be, but it's just not within our purview as originalists to opine on the all things considered conceptual merits of something that for us is fundamentally a historical inquiry. Well, one of the things that you make accommodation for a couple times uh, in the book is the institutional limits of the judiciary. And so uh, institutional capacities of judges uh, mm-hmm. in the distinctive institutions they, they find themselves in. And I guess it led me to wonder whether um, if, if we're going to do Section 1, 14th Amendment analysis of relationships mm, created by businesses affected with the public interest, I started to wonder whether courts would have the institutional capacity to do that work uh, and then whether instead they'd have to defer to legislatures to do really quite substantial uh, um, uh, regulation uh, over time um, um, in the relationships between private parties when businesses were affected with the public interest were in those um, were in those stories. So you see why the business affected with the public interest category, I think might not be quite as simple for you. Well, because I, it's an invitation for, 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 for regulation. I, I don't want to overemphasize. I did use the phrase business affected with the public interest because that is a phrase that came to be used in this third category. 
I totally agree with you. It is a completely under-theorized uh, category that ultimately broke down when the Supreme Court held that anything that the public cares about enough to pass a law about is by definition something in the public interest, which is what happened in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't agree with that. So you do need to be more concrete. That, that, you're right. As a historical matter, that phrase did not, did not hold up. Um, I just use it because it signifies the existence of a category that I think needs to have uh, more content and more uh, 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 about it, and which which I do think we can somewhat uh, uh, find in history. Uh, but having said that, as you uh, I th- you were alluding to the part of our book, which I actually uh, was maybe one of the parts I most enjoyed working with Evan to develop, is this idea. Um, that the Supreme Court has narrowed the meaning of Section 1 in part because of its perception, perhaps correctly, that judges are incapable of actually administering a broader conception of Section 1. Um, uh, And as a result of that, they have narrowed Congress's authority under Section 5 because they say, well, Congress... Section 5, it has to be remedial of the scope of Section 1, and we're narrowly construing Section 1. But why are they narrowing construing Section 1? It's because of lack of judicial competence to actually give it its full effect. What we're arguing for is the courts who recognize that Mm -hmm. Section 1 represents an under-enforceable or an under-judicially enforceable norm that Congress is free Mm -hmm. and state legislatures are free to do a little more of the work on the co- that the judges, the courts are not capable of. And the exhibit one of the kind of work that legislatures do is they pass public accommodations laws. The District of Columbia, in which Evan and I are, are sitting right now, has a public accommodations laws in which they're fleshing out exactly the terms on which people can access public accommodations free of discrimination on the basis of a number of categories um, that is something that the courts are not capable of doing, but this, the, the District of Columbia and uh, every other state in the union is capable of doing. So um, that is, I think, one of the innovations of the book uh, to point to the fact that many of the Supreme Court's narrow constructions of, the, of Section 1 of the 14th, 14th Amendment are driven by, cons- by justified, justified concerns about judicial competence. Mm-hmm. But then Section 5 is there to bring in the legislature, in this case Congress, to make up for some of the deficiencies that the courts cannot make up for. Just to clarify what we are not saying, we are not saying that the Supreme Court should, on the basis of its own institutional judgments about whether constitutional rights are either worth enforcing or whether it's good at enforcing, decline to enforce them or uh, defer to other institutions. We are making a specific claim that Republicans believed that Congress and legislatures more generally, based on their experience during the antebellum period and their confidence that Republicans would hold Congress for a substantial amount of time would be better equipped to protect civil rights than the Supreme Court that decided Dred Scott v. Sanford and Prigg v. Pennsylvania upholding the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. This was an institutional judgment that was embodied in a Section 5 that specifically singles out Congress as a privileged enforcer of the norms that are imposed upon the states by Section 1. So it is not a freestanding institutional judgment on our part. It is one that we argue is uh, made in the letter and consistent with the spirit of the 14th Amendment. Well, the, uh, growing or empowering Section 5 is something where, um, where the, the, the three of us are all going to agree. I think that you think you really did wonderful, powerful work uh, there, and those are... Those are really important arguments, and I'm, I'm in complete agreement. On the on the back to this original public meaning idea, um, uh, and the question that I tried to start with about what its relationship will be to earlier originalisms, something that seems to come along with your really creative, innovative, cutting edge original public meaning account is the idea that individual rights are open ended to time. That is, new ones will emerge that will be ought to be judicially recognizable. There's a it's not a closed set of liberties protected by Section One of the Fourteenth Amendment on on your account. You say this a, bun- a bunch of times, and I, I was really struck by it, interested in it, and I guess the reason is that a naive reader, and, and by naive I might mean I might mean even a pretty expert reader, certainly me. I don't know whether I'm naive or expert, mm-hmm. uh, might think. While it looks like originalism and living constitutionalism have had a wonderful embrace at last, 
This is just living originalism with a new meaning. It's called originalism in the spirit. And it'll grow over time as we grow over time. So am I... Help me through this thicket. It looks It's either a thicket or it's an embrace. I'm not sure which as I mix the metaphors. So it is a question that we get a lot, and we enjoyed working our way through uh, during manuscript sessions in which professors of various political persuasions um, tested us on just how much we were giving up um, in respect of the initially attractive to conservatives' promise of judicial restraint by acknowledging that new privileges or immunities could arise and be recognized by judges over the course of time. But it's important to specify exactly how we say they get recognized, because there is a difference between at least prevailing forms of living constitutionalism or non-originalism and our specific vision about the recognition of new rights, as well as the basis for our judgments that we should approach constitutional rights in that way. It is not for us um, a notion that... um, Judges should only recognize rights that have emerged over the course of time and are widespread in the states because it uh, promotes social peace, it enables the judiciary to respond in effective ways that respect the limits of it and its precarious precarious from a democratic perspective constitutional position. It is a claim about what privileges and immunities were understood to be at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified and how you went about identifying them. We claim that a privilege and immunity of citizenship was something that was the subject of widespread, borderline, supermajoritarian consensus across the states and had survived for something approximating a generation of time. Then and only then did you have a genuinely new privilege or immunity of citizenship emerging. And whatever approach, whatever similarities one might point to between, say, you know, Professor David Strauss's common law constitutionalism and the vision of privileges and immunities that I've just articulated, one that is based on a specific choice made at the point of ratification and one that allows for the emergence of rights only after they come something close to a threshold for constitutional amendment over a generation. I think that the difference between those two visions uh, is one that, notwithstanding your initial skepticism and skepticism that we encounter literally all the time, uh, does mark our approach as something different, both methodologically and operationally. But even and e- but even if you uh, disagree—not you, but if even one reader a, a disagree would deg- disagree with extending privileges or immunities to those that are established after 1868. That is not an argument from, from against fully protecting the privileges and immunities that did exist in 1868, which are underprotected by the Supreme Court today when they disregarded the privileges and immunities clause altogether. So many of the current decisions that are decided under the rubric of substantive due process are actually entirely justified under the rubric of privileges or immunities. And one of the most important functions of our book isn't reformist, it's legitimation, it's, it's legitimizing. It legitimates, it legitimates um, uh, many, many existing doctrines that appear to be in conflict with the original meaning of the Constitution and therefore arguably illegitimate. They turn out to be, in con- uh, con- they turn out to be uh, consistent um, uh, with the original meaning of the Constitution and therefore are not subject to that kind of criticism. And that would be true of many of the rights that are protected under the rubric of subs- now protected under the rubric of substantive due process. Is it a one-way ratchet? You see, you see, the, you see the thrust of the question. I mean, it's just over time, we should expect to see ever more individual liberties, ever more limits on what we can do, we the people can do in governing our community. Should I expect to see a one-way ratchet? This is this was a tough question for us. Again, this was we had we workshopped this book at several law school faculties uh, and. We got this question uh, in different forms quite, a, uh, uh, quite frequently. At a very minimum, what we do, ins- we do insert um, is that um, any rights that are protected by virtue of the constitutional amendment that's the 14th Amendment can be repealed by virtue of a subsequent constitutional amendment. So the 14th Amendment did amp up uh, the protection of our fundamental rights against states, 
in a way that didn't previously exist under the original Constitution. Uh, but once those rights were locked in, uh, the ones that were locked in can only be unlocked, uh, so to speak, um, by a subsequent constitutional amendment. All right. And then there's no outside of Article 5 for um, uh, for rolling them back. But there is outside Article 5 for adding new ones, I take it. I mean, I, 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 I suspect you're going to resist that, that account of it. But um, uh, it, it looks like that. I wouldn't. Uh, the 14th Amendment is rights generous in recognition of an antebellum period consisting of s- systematic deprivations of not only cherished rights, but emergent rights that w- had proven themselves over the test of time to be central to individual liberty. The 14th Amendment rests on the premise that we are going to continually discover rights that prove their worth in securing people's liberty and their civic equality, and it would be arbitrary to cut the process short in 1868. And let me just give two examples, one which is in the Constitution and one which isn't. The one that's in the Constitution is the right of suffrage. Um, Contrary to others, um, we actually agree with the consensus of opinion that the right of suffrage was considered to be a political right and therefore was not a privilege or immunity in 1868. Uh, But we also insist that it became a privilege or immunity of citizenship sometime after that. There were, there were avant-garde people uh, who advocated, who said that, no, it, like Charles Sumner, who said, oh, it is a privilege. But they were in the minority. Um, overwhelmingly, Republicans denied that it was a privilege of citizenship. But we insist that as a result of the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment, um, it became a privilege of citizenship afterwards. That's an enumerated addition of rights. An unenumerated right, which I think also existed at, the, at that time, but is not included in the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and it's not included in the first 10 amendments, that is, for example, the right of parents to raise their own children, the right of parents to direct uh, um, the nurturing and the, and the raising of their own children. I can hardly think of a more fundamental right than that, and yet that's not in the Constitution anywhere. It is a right that the Supreme Court has recognized to be a fundamental right, um, uh, but, it also, but it is one that has been enshrined in the positive law uh, of the United States probably since the beginning, I would say for sure since the beginning, and therefore is a privilege of citizenship. Uh, and if you think that the only rights that you, constitutional rights you have are the ones that are written into the text of the Constitution, then you have to believe that you don't have a right. Or you don't have a constitutional right to raise your own children. I think most people would, uh, and most conservatives, indeed most originalists, I think, would rebel at that notion. I'm tempted to say, say, say something about broccoli, but I don't think that's the right direction. In, in, not, in not, last, with, not with me. No, I know, I know. <laughs> in, in, our last, in our last minute or two, um, I wanted to turn to maybe ask a question that maybe other law professors didn't ask. It turns out I'm just, I'm just asking the expected questions from the faculty workshops. <laughs> that's where I live. You know, that's what I do. So, um, uh, you know, one of the things about parsing the language of the Reconstruction Amendments, and I hope you see that I have such admiration for moving to the Reconstruction Amendments, that great moral social transformation that Evan talked about at the outset. But one of the things, one of the limits on that Reconstruction language is that all the words we're now parsing are words that were produced by all-male, all-white Congresses. Now, and in the ratification process, no women we're voting in ratification. Maybe, I haven't, haven't fully checked. Maybe around the edges there are a couple states, but essentially no women. Um, black voters in the South, you know, thanks to military reconstruction, are participating in ratification voting there. But the, the words themselves are you know, essentially created by a really narrow set, racially and gender segregated set. These categories you know, are so salient in our public life today. What, how should we think about, as we try to broaden originalism away from the founding to include a more inclusive reconstruction, how should we think about this continuing glaring limitation? And what does it mean for clause-specific, word-sensitive readings of the Reconstruction Amendments? Well, I have a couple of things to say. First of all, and this is true of the founding document as well as the Reconstruction Amendments as well, and that is that the words of these texts, they may have been written by a privileged set, but they were written in words that everybody could understand. Um, there really is no evidence that women or African-Americans or even enslaved people would have read the words of the original Constitution any differently than anyone else did or read the words of the Declaration of Independence any differently than anyone else did. So the meaning of the Constitution, um, it, it's, it's, it's conceivable, it's hypothetically possible 
that a diff- that individual communities might have given a different meaning to a provision in the text, in which case you have an ambiguity that needs to be resolved by constitutional construction. You have an ambiguity that is not settled by the original public meeting. It's hypothetically possible that that happened. I don't know of any example of where that's been shown to happen. In other words, the meaning of the Constitution is the same for everyone, even though it was it was promoted by a few. But here's where I well, think... Well, you know, Randy, and I think I have to break it, because it, it turns out that law professors like to talk. And we've talked for a while now, and I'm being told that we need to wrap up. <laughs> so, okay. so I've opened up this, this invitation at just, uh, just the moment. Um, you know, I, I'd like to commend to our viewers this, uh, this, really, great, this really great book, provocative read and uh, lots of really interesting stuff. And hopefully Randy and Evan, I'll get to carry on the conversation here and elsewhere. Um, and uh, uh, happy, happy reading. Thanks, Randy. Thanks. Thanks. Evan. And thanks for your kind words. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, John. Really a pleasure. Great. You've been listening to the Afterwards podcast. This week, law professors Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick discussed the post-Civil War change to the Constitution in their book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. They were interviewed by Yale Law Professor John Witt. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's new podcast, About Books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestseller lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talk about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>